you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 42. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you underneath, but the words will also be up on the screen. And in case you're wondering if we are actually going to read these, these entire 40-plus verses, the answer is yes. And you want to know why? Because every word matters. Because every single word is breathed out by the Spirit of God, and it is written for us. So it all matters. So we're going to read the entire thing. And also, before we go on, because there is over 40 verses, uh, there is a lot of content, and my aim is not to load you with a lot of information, though it might seem like that. And so, there's a lot of content, and something that I try to do on Sunday mornings is bring other references from the Bible to show you that the, the Bible is one story. It is one book. It's not a it's not Old Testament, New Testament. The Bible is one book, and there are passages in the Old Testament that bring clarification or point to passages in the New Testament. There are New Testament passages that clarify Old Testament passages, and there are passages that kind of reinforce things that we need to learn. And so that's kind of the aim, and I hope that uh, it won't be uh, just overbearing for you. But just know that there is a lot of content, and I hope that it will be, uh, I hope you'll find it encouraging. That's my prayer anyway, and I hope that you'll learn a lot, that you'll take with you and apply to your life. So, John chapter 1, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. 
what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with the woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the fountain of living waters. So we pray that you would help us to draw from your well this morning, to see what your word says, and that your truths would help us to continue to to glorify your name, and that your truths would would help us to know who you are and that our hearts would be filled with joy because of this gift of eternal life and because of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christopher Love was a Puritan preacher in the 1600s, and he wrote numerous works. And one particular topic that he wrote quite extensively on was on the topic of heaven and eternal life. And not only have his writings helped the church, but what he's written and what he's thought so deeply about has helped him in a personal way in his life, especially as he stood before death's door. So Christopher Love and his life was caught up in a political affair of which he did play a minor role in, but he was accused of, a much, uh, of a something much bigger. 
He was accused of being the ringleader in a political conspiracy based on many unwarranted charges and unfounded allegations. But unfortunately, he was found guilty and he was condemned to beheading. His testimony and his life teaches us that no matter the trials that one faces today, that assurance of heaven and eternal life can be a means of support and encouragement in the present. One Puritan writer writes, Assurance of faith will bring down heaven into your bosoms. It will give you a possession of heaven on this side of heaven. An assured soul lives in paradise, walks in paradise, works in paradise, and rests in paradise. He has heaven within him and heaven over him. All his language is heaven, heaven, glory, glory. Christopher Love's heart was in paradise despite his present ordeal. And that is why immediately prior to his beheading, he could tell the lieutenant, Sir, I bless my God. My heart is in the heavens. I am well. Eternal life through Jesus Christ is not just this gift that we get to experience someday when we pass on into eternity for those who follow Jesus Christ, but eternal life is a gift that we actually get to enjoy now here in the present. And eternal life is the theme of this of this narrative. And I think there's four questions that draw out this theme for us, beginning with a question about water, a question about worship, a question about work, and lastly, a question about Jesus. So verse 7, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me as a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So in order to avoid drawing any more attention and hostility to himself, the, uh, particularly from the Pharisees, Jesus and his disciples decided to leave, and their destination was Judea. But rather than going straight through, rather than going uh, around Samaria and getting to Judea, which would a typical Jew might do. Instead, they decided to go straight through Samaria because that would be the quickest way to their destination. But then having been wearied from his travels, they sit down in a particular town in Samaria while his disciples go and fetch some food. And then comes the Samaritan woman. Jesus asked the Samaritan woman who comes to draw water for a drink, now, it's out of the ordinary for to, to find a, a woman coming by herself to draw water. We'll get to that a little bit later. But the woman, interestingly, named, remains nameless throughout the entire narrative. But she is shocked that Jesus is talking with her. Now, why would she be shocked that Jesus is talking with her? Well, she was a Samaritan while Jesus was a Jew. Samaritans were a mixed breed. So back in 1 Kings chapter 16, King Omri reigned over Israel. And at that time, Israel was a divided nation. There was the, the southern part of Israel, which became known as Judah, and the northern part of Israel just be, continued to remain as Israel. Now, King Omri was the king of the northern part of Israel, and he renamed the capital of the northern kingdom Samaria. Now, years later, the Assyrians would invade the northern part and deport a lot of the, the Jews from their country, and they would repopulate it with foreigners. And over time, those, the, uh, the remaining Jews or the remaining Israelites uh, intermarried with the foreigners. And they, then from then on, they became known as the Samaritans. 
And so they were no longer considered full-blooded Jews by those who were full-blooded Jews. And because of that, because actually because they, the law forbids the marriage, the marriage of outside of the Jewish community, well, then they were considered as outcasts. And so then the, event, the Samaritans would eventually establish their own heritage based on the Pentateuch, which is the five books, the first five books of the Bible, known as the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they would eventually go on to construct their own temple of worship, which would then be destroyed later on by the end of the second century. So then that is why the woman is surprised that Jesus is talking to her being a Samaritan because the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. They were considered as half-breeds. They wanted nothing to do with them. They were considered violators of God's commands. But Jesus, regardless of what's become normally or culturally acceptable, he talks to her anyway. And what starts out as a, as a, as a request for a drink quickly evolves into an invitation for her to come and have her thirst quenched. So in verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So here Jesus is telling the woman that if she knew two things, then she, rather than he asking her for a drink, then she would be the one asking him for a drink. And the gift of God most likely is the Torah. Again, a reference to the, the first five books of the Bible. So in other words, if she understood those first five books and who it is who was talking with her, then she would have been the one asking him for a drink which is information that the reader would know at this point, having gone through the first three chapters of the book of John. And then that leads the woman to ask, well, who is greater? Sir, you dug no well. Where do you get this water from? Is your water better than the one that I have sitting in front of me? This is, which was created, but this was dug up by Jacob himself, one of the patriarchs, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Are you greater than Jacob? Are you, is your water greater than what we have here before us? And Jesus answers in the affirmative. His water is greater, and he is greater than Jacob, because if you drink of the well before you, he says to the woman, then you're going to get thirsty again. But if you drink of my water, Jesus says, you're never going to thirst, and it's going to well up to eternal life. But still, still thinking about physical thirst, the woman then asks to have this water so that she no longer has to draw water from the well so that she's no longer thirsty again. So she is on the right track because that is exactly what Jesus is offering her. But it's not this physical water that Jesus is offering to the woman. But she is a little closer to understanding Jesus than Jesus' own people, the Jews. In Jeremiah 2.13, the Lord says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And second, they hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Right, which would you rather have? Broken cisterns that can hold no water, or would you rather have a well, a wellspring of eternal blessings that never runs out? And Jesus says that this wellspring you cannot get anywhere else than by him, than through him. 
And this living water, at least in this chapter, is a reference to satisfying eternal life, is what he's essentially offering her, which is mediated through the Spirit of God. Isaiah 12.3 tells us, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. John 7.37, Jesus says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So to drink from the wellspring of Jesus means to believe in Jesus. Jesus is calling the Samaritan woman to believe in him. And that results in eternal life. And that's what Isaiah 12 is pointing to. This well of salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus then responds to the woman's request for a drink by inviting her to go. Go, grab your husband, and then come. And now we get a little, a little personal, right? He goes into her personal life and a little closer to Jesus' uh, his, his self-revelation. Now, why the woman at that point is to go get her husband or her man is open interpretation, but she is honest, which Jesus actually acknowledges and commends her for her honesty. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You have no husband. And it appears that the woman has been divorced or widowed at five times. Or maybe it's a mix of both. Maybe she was divorced three times and widowed two times. It's hard to say, but I would tend to think that she's probably more divorced than widowed because this woman comes to the well alone. And at that time, women would come in groups to draw from the well. But she's, she's alone, which means that she's isolated. She's isolated for a reason, and that's probably because of her past. She's probably had way too many too many divorces in her lifetime, and now she's living with a man who is not her husband. And so the story is only kind of getting more scandalous. But several weeks ago, we walked through the conversation with Nicodemus, right? And I can't help but compare this conversation to that with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is, uh, is, uh, belongs to an elite class of the Pharisees, while the Samaritan woman is considered disgraceful by her own people, not only by her own people, hence why she's isolated, but also disgraceful by the Jews themselves. Because again, she's a mixed breed. But when it comes to matters of the kingdom of heaven, education or the lack of or where you come from, where you're, what's culturally acceptable, whatever your history is, it doesn't matter. Actually, by the end of the narrative, the one who, kind of, who finally gets it is the woman, while Nicodemus is probably still wondering what it even means to be born again to, be, and to enter the kingdom of heaven. However, before the woman comes to this, to her climatic conclusion, unlike Nicodemus, she at least admits that Jesus might be a prophet, an admission that Nicodemus was kind of reluctant to admit, at least what it seems like. But regardless of the culture, what's culturally acceptable, despite what's happened in her past, right, Jesus is still offering the gospel to her, right, because it doesn't belong to a particular class of people. It doesn't belong to those who are, are smart or intelligent or less intelligent, those who have much or those who have little. The gospel is for everyone. So then before things get too personal, the woman abruptly changes the subject, and then the conversation becomes a question about worship. So after kind of disclosing what's in her life, the woman says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. So after getting a little personal, the topic of conversation has changed, which is understandable, right? She doesn't want to talk anymore about her personal life. But also when you have two individuals who believe two different things, it's almost unavoidable to get to those matters that actually separate you. And now it becomes a question of worship, the the place of worship and what worship actually is. She says, sir, you believe that worship happens in the temple in Jerusalem, while we believe it's here, here being Mount Gerasim which the Samaritans based on their understanding of the first five books of the Bible. It was on Mount, uh, Mount Gerasim that the blessings of the covenant community would be shouted. That's in Deuteronomy 11.29 and Joshua 8.30. Shechem being the first place where Abraham built an altar to the Lord once he entered the promised land, Genesis 12.6, was overlooked by Mount Gerasim. However, the Jews, blazed, they based their place of worship in Jerusalem, according to David, who instituted Jerusalem as the capital and instituted the temple, being that being the site of the temple, which God authorized his son, King Solomon, to do after him. And even after the temple was destroyed later on, that continued to be the site where the temple would be rebuilt. But the Samaritans wouldn't know that because they only have their, we could, I guess we could say that their Bible was only five books long. And it's for this reason that Jesus says that you worship what you do not know. The woman and the Samaritans in general don't have a full understanding or a full picture of the God that they claim to be worshiping. I mean, just think, they didn't have the promise of, of a greater king coming from the line of David. They had, they had a, an understanding of the Messiah, but they didn't have a full picture of the Messiah. They didn't have Isaiah 53, which talked about the suffering servant who would come and die for the transgressions of his people. They didn't have the promise of the new covenant where God would, uh, would write the, uh, the, his commandments upon the hearts of his people and give them his spirit, mediated by this new and better covenant. The Samaritans were outside of the full biblical revelation up until this point. So their worship wasn't based on truth, at least not the full truth that was available to them at the time. But in the end, it doesn't matter where a person worships as long as they do so in spirit and truth. And this is likely a reference to Jeremiah 31, 31, where it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord." For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Joel 2.28 says, And it shall come to pass afterward 
that I will pour my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. In the Old Testament, there are these strong associations between the Word and the Spirit of God. We see this in Isaiah 59, 21, for example, where the, the Word of the Lord and the Spirit of God would be on His chosen vessel. In Psalm 33, 6, that it says that the, that the heavens and the earth were, were created by the breath of God, that is the Spirit, and by His Word. And now, since we are talking about the temple and the, place of, the proper place of worship, it's helpful to connect it to back to John chapter 2, where Jesus is in the temple and cleansing the temple, and he identifies himself as the, as the replacement of the temple. And so what Jesus says, what Jesus is getting at in this conversation is that if anyone desires to worship God, he must do so through the new temple who is Jesus Christ. And the only way that's possible is through, it's in spirit and in truth. We cannot know God unless he reveals himself to us. It's his his self-revelation that enables us to worship him. And he not only has revealed himself through the Pentateuch, through the first five books of the Bible, but through the other 34 Old Testament books. And not only that, but much more so through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus says that to see him is to see the Father. So to worship God... Worship must be biblically informed based on what he has revealed about himself and through the indwelling spirit of God. Romans 8.15 tells us, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. John Calvin says that the worship of God is said to consist in the spirit because it is nothing else than that inward faith of the heart which produces prayer and next purity of conscience and self-denial that we may be dedicated to obedience to God as holy sacrifices. To worship in spirit and in truth means that worship must be based on what God has revealed to us about himself And worship is done through the indwelling Spirit of God by whom we are adopted as His beloved children through our faith in Jesus Christ. So we do not worship God primarily because of what He's done for us, though He has done many things for us. We do not worship the Lord in order to try to get things from Him. We do not worship Him because we want wealth and prosperity and health and happiness. But biblical worship in spirit and in truth is to worship God based on who he is, what he has revealed about himself to us. And to worship God is what saints do who are on their way to this eternal glory, to this eternal life. Jesus himself says that eternal life is to know God. To know God now and to worship him now is what we do in preparation for what we will do for all of eternity. I mean, just think of, the, just think of a, a beloved or dear friend, or think of a spouse. Think about the things that make them who they are, their the good qualities, their characteristics, the things that draw you to their friendship or to draw them or that draws you to their love. Right, that's what, we, that's what we're getting at here. We're thinking about what God has revealed about himself, his goodness, his faithfulness, his, his trustworthiness, his holiness, his perfections, his, his omnipotence, his all-knowing, his, ever, his, his everywhere presence, 
his justice, his righteousness, all those things, is, those are the things that enable us to worship him. Those are the things that he has, that he has revealed about himself to us. And we worship him in the spirit, through the indwelling spirit of God, because it is the spirit of God that purifies our consciences so that he sees us as blameless and holy and is that kind of worship that he finds acceptable. We enjoy eternal life today by knowing God now and worshiping him now. And if you don't believe in Christ and you don't follow him with your life, Jesus is making that offer to you today. He's asking you, he's offering you this wellspring of eternal life to drink from his well. Jesus wants you to have eternal life. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter where you come from, he is making you that offer today to believe in him. Drink of this wellspring and you will have eternal life. Believe in his death on the cross for sinners. Believe that you have forgiveness by calling out to him, by trusting your life to him. And you receive the Spirit of God who is the down payment of this future and eternal glory that awaits those who believe in him. And it is through the Spirit of God that you'll be enabled to worship him in spirit and in truth. So then continuing in the passage, it seems that the woman is trying to end the conversation by saying that the Messiah will finally come and settle things, right? Despite, what we di despite where we disagree, I know that the Messiah is going to come someday and he's going to tell us the truth. He's going to tell us who's right and wrong. To which Jesus reveals his identity and tells her he is the Messiah, which also means that he's right. <laughs> then the narrative shifts from a question about worship to a question about work. Verse 27 tells us the disciples come back. They marveled that Jesus was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the woman runs off to town and it's surprising that the people don't dismiss her. At least it's surprising to me because that's what you might expect. Given her past, given that she's isolated, given the fact that she's living with somebody who is not her husband, which was culturally unacceptable. And I would say still unacceptable. But the people, at least, they're at least interested enough to believe her and to come to see for themselves. Meanwhile, the disciples are urging Jesus to eat. He's hungry, he's tired, he's thirsty, but he refuses to eat because he's focusing on kingdom matters. Right? Despite how hungry he is, he knows that this woman is going to come back and bring more people with her. Jesus says to his disciples, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. What Jesus says here is analogous to what Moses says to the Israelites in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses tells the people he, that God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, 
nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus even quotes that passage when the devil tempts him in the wilderness to, to, to turn the stones into bread while he's fasting. Jesus answers the devil and is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Jesus is saying is that what is sustaining him in this moment, despite his exhaustion and thirst and hunger, are these kingdom matters. More than his appetite is for food, he has a greater appetite to do the work of the kingdom. Because to fill, to fulfill his, to satisfy his physical appetite, right, that's temporal. Though it's important, but it is temporal. But kingdom matters, that's, that's eternal. It's almost like he's saying that to satisfy his, his physical appetite would be a distraction right now. I mean, have you ever worked so hard that you forgot to take lunch? Some of you are probably like, I would never forget to take lunch. But some of us probably work through lunch purposely because we have so much to do and we're able to deny our physical appetite in order to focus on what matters. I personally have a hard time trying to eat while at the same time giving my attention to something that requires my full attention because I see the food as the distraction. And some of it is spiritual, but a lot of it is it's just not spiritual. It's not spiritual at all. It's just, it's just what it is. Jesus is giving his full attention to the matter at hand, and he refuses to be distracted by what his body wants. Because the time of harvesting has come. The Samaritans are coming to Jesus. And he says to the disciples, you have it easy, because you didn't have to sow anything into the field. Yet, you get to be a part of the harvest. The Samaritans are coming, and you get to gather fruit for eternal life from these Samaritans who are now on their way to see Jesus, to see for themselves if this water is actually living, if this water is actually good. So then in the narrative, there's been a question about water, a question about worship, question about work, and it concludes then with a question about Jesus. It concludes by saying, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. Which is sort of a little exaggeration. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. I can tell you how awesome the Grand Canyon is. I can tell you how small you might feel as you try to take in its breath. I can describe it to you with many words, but at the end of the day, you won't really get it until you go there and see it for yourself. Right? I can tell you how tasty a Chick-fil-A sandwich is. I'm really hungry right now. But I can tell you how tasty it is, right? But you're never going to know how tasty it is until you try it for yourself, which you won't do today because they're closed. The Samaritans heard of the Messiah. They've heard of him through this woman's testimony, but until they got there and saw him for themselves, they would have never known how good he really is. They came and tasted and saw for themselves that the Lord is good. Jesus had told the woman that if she would take the water that he's offering, she will never thirst again. And not only is she drinking from this wellspring, but now many other people in the town are coming and drinking of this water also. So as we proceed through the, the narrative from the from the, as we proceed through the narrative from the beginning to the end, Jesus starts out as this as this Jewish teacher, and he ends up becoming at the end the savior of the world. Right? He's acknowledged as Sir, 
And by the end of the narrative, he is Savior. The one who has and one who offers eternal life. So salvation and eternal life have come to those who are outside of the Jewish nation, those who are considered disgraceful, but also to them who are outside of the full biblical revelation, showing that salvation and eternal life is not for the Jews only, but it is also for Gentiles, for outsiders, for outcasts, for those who are considered unworthy by the rest of the world. The story of the Samaritan woman is encouraging because it shows that God will not lose a single one of those who are his. While Jesus intended to go straight through Samaria to his last destination, God had plenty of people in this particular town of of Samaria, those who belonged to him, who needed this offer of eternal life. And they got it. So I mentioned in the beginning that the overarching theme of the passage is eternal life. So my encouragement to you is to practice eternal life now. You yourselves have drunk from this living water that Jesus offers, and you have received eternal life. Again, that means that, that this is it. It, it. It's not something that you get to enjoy someday in the future, but eternal life is something that you get to enjoy now in the present. And you get to practice that right now. As I mentioned before, Christopher Love wrote extensively on eternal life. And he wrote that there are 10 marks of a glorified life. And I'm not going to tell you all 10 marks. But I'm going to give you one. One that I think fits with this, the theme of this passage. And the mark of a glorified life, that is a life that is on its way to eternal glory. One particular mark of a glorified life is that that life will seek and glorify Christ in the world now with a view to glorifying and worshiping Him in eternity. That, again, the mark of a glorified life is that he, that that person, he or she, will seek Christ and glorify Christ in the world now with a view to glorifying Him and worshiping Him in eternity. Romans 15, 6 tells us that together you, you may with one voice glorify God and Father our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we welcome, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Jesus is fully deserving of all our worship. And we will spend all of eternity worshiping God and worshiping Jesus Christ. And we do so now because we are preparing to do that into eternity. Not only that, because, but because we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, we want to worship Him now. And if you're asking, well, what does worshiping look like? Does that mean that we are singing songs to lyrics and musical instruments into eternity? And that's not all that worship is. Worship is a lot more than that. Worship is life. If you are indwelt by the Spirit of God and have understood and believe what God has revealed about Himself through His Word, then you can worship the Lord anywhere while working while cleaning, while taking care of kids, while spending time with God's people, while sharing the gospel. Worshiping looks like walking in obedience. It looks like repenting of sin. The hymn writer Isaac Watts once wrote, The great God values not the service of men if the heart be not in it. The Lord sees and judges the heart. He has no regard to outward forms of worship if there, if there be no inward adoration, if no devout affection be employed therein. 
It is therefore a matter of infinite importance to have the whole heart engaged steadfastly to God. Worship is essentially about the heart, what you love most and what you live, ultimately live for. And in Love's 10 Marks, I probably would have, I think I would have loved to see him add one more mark of a glorified life. And that mark would be that the glorified life will live in community with the glorified saints. Through Jesus Christ, we are all citizens of God's heavenly kingdom, but we will not enjoy that citizenship. We will not wait to enjoy that citizenship when we enter into heaven, but we enjoy that citizenship here and now. Right, as a church, we can work with other like-minded churches, collaboratively, collaboratively working to promote the gospel, but, it's, but we can't do that all the time. But when God calls his people to be part of a church, he calls them to do life together. That means plugging in. That means, that means committing. That's doing life together that's, that can be done over lunch in a community group setting that's here on Sunday mornings, that's through accountability. That is, all these things, we should see all these things as a preparation for the life to come. And it also shows that the kingdom does matter to you. So then I ask, does the kingdom matter to you? And ask yourself, is the Lord Jesus the one that you love most? Jesus not only is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, and those who worship in spirit and truth have their whole heart engaged in that matter.